the internet took hold and gained mainstream adoption with the email application. Once the internet became entrenched due to email, it began eating everything. Bitcoin is becoming entrenched as a store of value asset like gold. But if it continues to accomplish that, it could also eat parts of many other asset classes and money applications. Bitcoin is vying to be a sort of base layer foundation for money. And because it's programmable, adaptable, and digital like the internet itself, it may eventually work its way into many, if not most, areas where human beings move and store value. 40 years into the life of the internet, there's almost nowhere information isn't touched by it. 40 years into the life of Bitcoin, there may be almost nowhere money isn't touched by it. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Good morning, afternoon, evening, or middle of the night to each and every one of you. Thanks for spending part of your day with the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This week, we have something different in store than our usual weekly dialogue. This episode is a monologue, a talk given by myself, Dan, that's intended to explain the importance and significance of Bitcoin starting from ground zero in just under 45 minutes. If you are a longtime listener, you may recall I recorded something similar to this around a year ago, and this talk mirrors parts of that. However, I did make significant alterations, omissions, and additions. This process of reviewing what I spoke about a year ago was a fulfilling and helpful reminder for me that our opinions and viewpoints evolve and grow over time. Part of learning and being intellectually honest is a recognition that arrival is not a thing. There is no destination when it comes to learning, and we should all stay committed to remaining humble and perpetually open to new ideas. I'm confident that if I record this another year from today, my understanding of Bitcoin will have evolved and changed further. It may go without saying, but educating people on macroeconomics, finance, and Bitcoin is our passion and mission here at the BCB Podcast. On our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io, we have a resource page where Josh and myself have tried to distill our years of reading and listening down into lists of books, articles, and podcasts we feel contain the most signal. We have these lists categorized by time i.e. Bitcoin in one hour, Bitcoin in five hours, 15 hours, or 50 hours. If this would be something helpful for you or someone you know, go check it out. We have a link down in the show notes. While on the topic of education, we have to mention the looking glass. It's hard to think of another project that more closely aligns with our ethos and target audience here at BCB. The Looking Glass is an outstanding and free resource that provides succinct material to remove the veil of complexity surrounding our monetary and economic systems, as well as accurately explain Bitcoin. The Looking Glass has a totally free foundations course that's an excellent place to start, especially for someone that doesn't have a finance or econ background. Check out their stuff at lookingglasseducation.com. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Pod is sponsored by some badass Bitcoin-focused companies. BCB is powered by the one, the only, the illustrious, CoinKite. Any Bitcoiner with at least one ear, one eye, or half a brain has most certainly heard of the cold card. Simply the most trustworthy Bitcoin security hardware in the business, and something the two of us have relied on for years. And folks, it's been upgraded. 
Get your hands on the new Cold Card Mark IV with improved security elements, USB-C connector, new plastic, NFC, massive RAM for multi-sig, and much more. If you are purchasing a cold card, now including the new Cold Card Mark IV, be sure to use promo code BCB for 5% off purchases. In addition to the cold card, you've also likely seen the block lock, that downright sexy display art piece tempting you in the background shot of every serious Bitcoiner on planet Earth. We know you want one. Stop flirting with the block clock and go all the way. In addition to these items, CoinKite offers a number of other products, including the Seed Plate, a simplistic and well-constructed option for metal seed backup, the legendary Open Dime, and several new products, including the Sats Card, Tap Signer, and rumor has it coming soon as a Block Clock Micro. Go to blockclockmicro.com to glance at this little beauty. BCB Podcast is also sponsored by Ledin. Ledin is an extremely unique financial services company with a highly principled Bitcoin forward perspective. They are the first ever digital asset lending platform to undergo a formal proof of reserves attestation. This is where an independent public accountant regularly confirms that the company is properly accounting for client assets. Put simply, this company mirrors and embraces the transparency, accountability, and auditability of the Bitcoin protocol and network itself. If you're a regular BCB listener, you notice that we advise our audience to be careful, manage risk, and never get over leveraged. And that does include ensuring that any borrowing and lending decisions make sound mathematical sense based on your lifestyle and your specific situation. Where available in your jurisdiction, Ledin offers a menu of powerful financial services. Keep ownership of your Bitcoin and access dollar loans with Ledin Bitcoin back loans. Harness your Bitcoin holdings to buy a new property or finance the home you already own with the upcoming Ledin Bitcoin mortgage product. Save Bitcoin and USDC to have access to Ledin dollar loans in their trading service if available. You can learn more about Ledin's well-architected menu of services at ledin.io and visit start.ledin.io slash bluecollarbitcoin and sign up to get 10 USDC for creating and funding an account. All right. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy as we explore the significance of Bitcoin in one 45-minute sitting. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Howdy, folks. It's Dan here. Welcome in. Glad you've joined me. My goal is to try and distill the importance of Bitcoin down into a single, reasonably concise talk. Now, Bitcoin is somehow simultaneously startlingly simple, yet tremendously complex. Generally speaking, the origins, purpose, and utility of Bitcoin can be very difficult to grasp. I agree with well-known Bitcoiner Michael Saylor when he suggests that it can often take around 40 hours of research and study for a person to even really start wrapping their head around the significance of Bitcoin. It took me several years for the real implications of this discovery to click. In this relatively short time span, I'm going to make an attempt to briefly summarize what Bitcoin is and then why it matters. This is a tall task. I'll be brushing over themes and ideas rather quickly that could be talked about for hours. I'll be defining terms assuming the audience is brand new to the space. 
but hopefully this can still be helpful if you've been studying Bitcoin for a while. The goal in this talk isn't to do Bitcoin full justice. I won't be able to get remotely close to accomplishing that in this time span. Rather, my goal is to get the wheels turning for newcomers, maybe fill in gaps for some others, or give those with a more full understanding of Bitcoin some ideas on how to explain it. One more disclaimer before I get into the meat and potatoes. Bitcoin functions in a variety of different capacities, and it represents different things to different people. For me personally, I tend to look at Bitcoin most predominantly through an economic and investment lens, and although I could spend time exploring other angles, this is the lens I plan to look at Bitcoin through during this specific talk. As we get going, let me be clear, I'm not here to tell you what Bitcoin will do in decades to come, but rather what it might do. At this point, it's worth pissing off any overconfident binary thinkers right off the bat in saying that Bitcoin is not inevitable. Although I'm going to explore in this talk why Bitcoin is quite possibly the most remarkable thing I've ever studied, I want to reiterate that very few things in this world are a guarantee. Bitcoin included. Bitcoin is currently trading just below 30,000, and in the short term, I'm not sure whether it's going to 3,000 or 100,000. But what I do think is there's a possibility, I say possibility, not inevitability, that long term a single Bitcoin could be trading for hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. If this makes no sense to you, you have no idea how this might occur. I'll do my best to walk you through how this protocol could garner that much interest and accrue that much value. If you're someone who immediately reacts to the word Bitcoin and thinks it's complete speculative hogwash with no purpose, hang tight and please keep listening. Does Bitcoin include some of the dumbest idiots in the world, living in their parents' basements deep into adulthood trying to get rich quick? Yes, it does. Does Bitcoin also have the attention of some of the smartest economists, financial minds, and technologists in the world? Yes, it does. Both of these things are true. If you dismiss Bitcoin, assuming it's only supported by ill-informed morons, you are missing one whole side of this digital coin. To set a proper backdrop for the advent of the Bitcoin protocol, I'll start by going way, way back to the history of our species and the history of money. What is money exactly? It's important to recognize that what makes our species unique is our ability to cooperate. Chimpanzees can cooperate in groups up to 150, but if you threw 20,000 of them in the Madison Square Garden, it would be utter and complete chaos. Now, what makes Homo sapiens special in the animal kingdom is our ability to cooperate at massive scale. We do this through shared tools, ideas, and beliefs. Money is a tool a technology, a shared fiction, if you will, that our species invented to cooperate at large scale. Technologies and tools don't remain stagnant. They change over decades, centuries, and millennia as new and better ideas emerge. Money has changed its form countless times in history, and I'm here to tell you it will change again. We must recognize that each individual, each one of us, has an extremely limited view of history. Just because some things remain constant in our short-living memories doesn't mean it's a perpetual fixture that will never change. Our species once bartered, then we used ancient monies like livestock, shells, and salt. 
We then moved to precious metals such as silver and gold, and then to gold-backed currencies, and since 1971, paper currencies that aren't backed by a sound or predictable reference point. That's the fiat system that we have today. Bitcoin is a brand new kid on the block, a new kind of money, if you will, with the potential to alter the very fabric of how our species stores and transfers value across time and space. On October 31st, 2008, a pseudonymous individual on the internet by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto posted a link to a paper titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, in which he outlined his idea for a completely decentralized digital currency. This paper is actually sitting up on the wall behind me as I record, and it fits on a single 24 by 36 inch poster. What Satoshi created was a monetary or money protocol built on top of the internet. Now let's go ahead and define the word Bitcoin because it's used to mean two different things. It's both the name of the protocol running on the internet and the name of the monetary units within that protocol. So this is akin to using the word email to generally or broadly describe a form of messaging technology. For example, does your mom use email? But the word email is also used to describe specific individual messages. For example, did you get the email I sent you last Tuesday? Now let's also stop here to define the word protocol. A protocol is essentially a set of rules for moving packets of information digitally across the internet. To put this another way, Protocols are sets of instructions that participating devices, i.e. computers, on a network agree to such that they can communicate and transfer data and information. We all use protocols every day. The entire internet is built on them. Every video you stream, text you send, email you read, tweet you like is working on a protocol. Here are a couple examples of internet protocols you may be familiar with. HTTP the Hypertext Transfer Protocol. It's a protocol used to transmit data present on the World Wide Web. This includes text, multimedia, and graphics. SMTP is another example. This is the Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. It's an email protocol used for sending email messages from one account to another via the internet. Bitcoin is another protocol running on top of the internet on a network of computers. These computers on the Bitcoin network are called nodes. We could say that just like the SMTP protocol's purpose is email messaging, sending communications across space and time, the Bitcoin protocol's purpose is money, transferring value across space and time. The Bitcoin protocol is the first of its kind, and it has many characteristics that make it powerful and unique. To understand Bitcoin, it's important to ask why it was created. To be fair, Bitcoin was created for a variety of reasons. But for the purpose of this specific talk that I'm giving today, which I mentioned off the top is going to be primarily through the economic lens, we'll zero in on one motivation and say Satoshi was trying to fix a specific problem that he saw within the existing global financial system. Within the first ever block on the Bitcoin blockchain, the Genesis block, which was mined or created in 2009, Satoshi encoded a message that specifically highlighted European Central Bank bailouts and monetary manipulation during the great financial crisis. Satoshi's emails and writing do show us that he, she, or they had a major problem with the current monetary system, what we know as the fiat system. The word fiat stands for by decree, so essentially it means money by decree or money controlled by the government. 
Today, governments mold the foundations of money through central banking and the use of tools like fiscal and monetary policy. It's important to recognize that the current level of government control we have over money is a fairly new phenomena. Money is not a product of nation-states. It appeared well before them. To zero in on one case study, the Central Bank of the United States as we know it today was formed in 1913, and one can argue that the Federal Reserve was significantly more restricted prior to 1971 when Nixon took us off the gold standard. The takeaway here is that fiat currency underpinning the financial system as it does today dates back just 50 years, less than a single lifespan. What's interesting is that in the United States, many if not most of the founding fathers, like Thomas Jefferson, actually detested the idea of central banking, believing it gave far too much power to centralized authorities. This is why the United States was founded without a central bank. We currently live in a day and time when centralized actors, central banks and governments, control both the supply of money, that being the number of units that exist, as well as the price of money, that being interest rates. To put this mildly, there is a massive and steadily increasing amount of money manipulation taking place in the 21st century. It's currently June of 2022, and since January of 2020, money supply has expanded by an astonishing 40%. The M2 money supply is an important metric for measuring total money in circulation. Let's trend this briefly. In the United States in the year 2000, M2 sat at just over $5 trillion. Prior to COVID popping off in early 2020, it was just over $15 trillion, and as I record this today, it sits at nearly $22 trillion. Now, money expansion is a complex and nuanced subject, but I believe it's fair to say fiscal and monetary policies enacted by central banks and governments are certainly contributors to monetary expansion through policies like quantitative easing, never-ending deficits, interest rate manipulation, stimulus checks, debt cancellation, and the list could go on. We don't have time here to explore exactly how and why they do these sorts of activities. But the broad point I'm making is that governments and central banks currently do a lot of money manipulation, which commonly results in money expansion, i.e. more money entering the system than would have occurred without their intervention. Governments purport to do this for good reason, and these aforementioned policies are often understandably instituted to avoid short-term economic pain. Much of society doesn't see a problem with the current fiat monetary system, where centralized entities, banks, and governments control the foundation of the monetary system. A group of people that wouldn't see an issue with this are modern monetary theorists. But an increasing number of others view this money manipulation as an issue. Satoshi was certainly in this latter camp. I'm going to take some time here to briefly explore four reasons a person might take issue with the manner in which our current economic system is constructed. Reason number one, it can lead to exorbitant government spending. Since many of today's governments in theory control both the supply of money and the cost of money, that being interest rates, they don't have to balance budgets, but rather can keep racking up ballooning debt. For example, Many social programs and wars have been funded almost completely through newly printed money or debt that will never be paid back, or at least not paid back in a conventional manner. A helpful metric to look at as we trend levels of debt in the economy is debt divided by GDP, or gross domestic product. Let's look at the United States. 
public debt over GDP, that came out to around 30% in the 1970s. Today, it's above 120%. This means that public debts have grown fourfold as compared to productivity in just the last 50 years. The issue I'm identifying here is that governments have grown steadily larger and larger without actually having to procure more funds through taxation or real borrowing funded by real investors. If they need more money, they can simply create it or manipulate its price. Now, reason number two someone might take issue with the fiat economic system. Inflation and or debasement. Every new monetary unit that enters an economic system decreases the value of existing units. This is in essence a shadow tax on the citizens of a country. With the amount of debt in the system and the current and likely future tempo of government spending, much of this debt has and will continue to be monetized, meaning government treasuries will need to borrow money from central banks to finance public spending in lieu of raising taxes or selling bonds to actual public or private investors. This dynamic has, and will continue to, increase money supply, and existing dollars in your pocket are devalued and debased every time new money enters the system. With all of the trillions of dollars that have already entered and the trillions more that are forthcoming, it's very likely your life has and will continue to get more and more expensive, or at the very least more expensive than it would have been without the monetary manipulation. Reason number three, our economy is riddled with debt and leverage. The term we could use to describe our economy is that it's alarmingly over-leveraged. The propensity of central banks around the world to manipulate money supply and interest rates has led to artificially high levels of borrowing and lending. When money is cheap, i.e. interest rates are low, people have a propensity to over-borrow and overspend. They go into more debt, follow the incentives. In many regards, fiscal and monetary policies place band-aids on problems, artificially propping up industries that would otherwise have failed. Now, it can be argued that these centralized policies encumber the free market's ability to weed out bad ideas, adapt, recover, and grow appropriately. In my lifetime, we've seen public bailouts of entire industries that would have otherwise gone under or evolved and been replaced by more productive entities. The overarching concern here is that these short-term economic fixes, this kicking of the financial can down the road, if you will, will lead to greater long-term net pain in the economy. An analogy often drawn is that of forest fires. If you never let fires burn, the fires that still inevitably occur and get out of control are significantly more destructive. As monetary historians like Ray Dalio have chronicled, history shows us that too much debt leads to fragile and vulnerable economies that can unravel abruptly and uncomfortably. Reason number four that a person might take issue with today's setup is that it can be argued artificial money insertion widens the wealth gap. As money gets inserted through tools like quantitative easing, it generally finds its way into assets. Wealthy individuals disproportionately hold the assets and therefore benefit from artificial increases in asset prices that invariably occur when more money is chasing fewer assets. Those with fewer assets reap less of the benefit and more squarely suffer the consequences of the subsequent inflation. Many would suggest that this leads to the upper class getting wealthier and the middle and lower classes remaining financially stagnant or in decline. 
I barely brushed over these subjects, and those were just four quick reasons people take issue with the current monetary architecture. There are plenty more reasons, and each of these issues is complex and multifaceted. Many people would have fair counterarguments and rebuttals for each of the items and reasons I just highlighted. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Whether you personally agree or disagree with how the current system works, many people in the world today, such as Satoshi Nakamoto, see or saw a problem with the current monetary system. Many demographics have not benefited from the current economic setup, and they don't view it as fair, equitable, or good for their economic stability or upward mobility. This means much of the world is hungry and ready for a shakeup in how our current economic system is designed. They are ready for new monetary mechanics, a new tool to use as money, if you will. At its core, Bitcoin may sit ready to meet this demand and completely change how the fiat system operates, down to its very core. Satoshi's invention of Bitcoin was a momentous leap forward in monetary technology and computer science. Like many technologies that have had significant impacts on human cooperation and organization, things like the printing press, the internal combustion engine, or the internet, Bitcoin was the amalgamation of numerous ideas and inventions that had been worked on for decades prior by swaths of computer scientists and engineers. The Bitcoin protocol utilized prior inventions like proof-of-work, one-way hash functions, and public-private key cryptography, and then added ingredients like blockchain, or time chain as it's better referred, and the difficulty adjustment to solidify a groundbreaking move in how value can be transferred digitally. For the first time in history, Satoshi discovered true digital scarcity. Prior to Bitcoin, digital scarcity was a problem that hadn't been solved. If I sent you a picture, a movie, an email, or a photo on the internet, this digital item could theoretically be copied endlessly. Bitcoin is the first time in history we have a truly scarce digital item that can't be copied, replicated, or counterfeit. The Bitcoin protocol creates a form of money that is completely and programmably scarce. A money that is mathematically and cryptographically immune to tampering with. Here we need to quickly define the word scarcity because it's key to anyone's understanding of Bitcoin's significance. Scarcity refers to something that is in short or limited supply. History demonstrates that scarcity is arguably the most important characteristic of a good and effective form of money. Every participant in a monetary system has an incentive to produce more units. In other words, if you can create more of a currency, you will. And if this is too easy to do, a money can become worthless. There are currently around 19 million Bitcoin in existence, and by the year 2140, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. No more and no less. BTC is tied for gold as the scarcest asset on the planet. But by mid-2024, Bitcoin will be the scarcest asset the world has ever seen, the most inflation-resistant form of money our species has ever come in contact with. No person, no influencer, no organization, no government can change the issuance schedule or alter the rules of this money, as can be done in the current fiat system. Nobody can simply decide to create more Bitcoin. The importance of this discovery cannot be overstated. Bitcoin accomplishes this perfect digital scarcity through a number of means, but one paramount attribute of Bitcoin 
is that it runs on an extensively decentralized network. Decentralized is a word you will hear a lot as you investigate Bitcoin, so let's dig into it and explore some of what it signifies. Prior to this discovery of Bitcoin, intermediaries were required to delineate who was in control of the digital good. You had to trust a third party. For example, Facebook controls who has what profile, Spotify labels songs to their respective artists, banks and brokerage firms sort out who has what capital, etc. The Bitcoin protocol creates a form of digital money that can be completely trusted and transferred between two parties without any intermediaries. In this way, Bitcoin is what we can call a peer-to-peer network. No person, group, or government controls Bitcoin. Rather, the users do. Because it's a decentralized and peer-to-peer network, not even the largest government in the world can manipulate, alter, or control the Bitcoin ledger. All money systems are essentially ledgers. Think of a ledger as a book of financial accounts or a spreadsheet of who owns what. The U.S. dollar system, for example, is one giant ledger. Stacy has 4,000 U.S. dollars and John has 1 million U.S. dollars. Monetary systems are just accountings of who owns what. Bitcoin is the same. It runs a ledger that reflects how much Bitcoin each participant possesses. Now, at this point, you might be asking, how is it that the Bitcoin protocol cannot be manipulated or controlled? How can it maintain a reliable ledger without anyone overseeing it? And what makes the Bitcoin ledger unique is that it's housed on thousands of computers all over the world called nodes. I personally run one of these nodes in my home. Without getting into too much technical detail, independent Bitcoin nodes, which theoretically anyone can run, in conjunction with Bitcoin miners, reach consensus roughly every 10 minutes on what is the accurate state of the ledger, i.e. which valid transactions occurred. What is agreed upon via this consensus then gets recorded into the blockchain and remains there indefinitely to be built on top of by other blocks. The key takeaway from what I've just outlined is that to alter the Bitcoin ledger, you would need to impede or tamper with thousands of computers, all at the same time, and all in different locations. This is what makes Bitcoin's ledger unchangeable or immutable, i.e. close to impossible to hack or manipulate. Much like the Bible, Bitcoin is everywhere yet nowhere. How would you go about changing, say, the Gospel of Mark? There are endless copies of the Bible, and even if you change the Gospel of Mark in 10,000 Bibles, or in one whole country, you wouldn't make any real headway toward fundamentally changing scripture. Bitcoin operates the same way. By spreading its ledger endlessly far and wide, there is no central point of attack. Here's a quote by renowned Bitcoin author and thinker Gigi. Satoshi didn't make info non-copyable. Every part of Bitcoin, its source code, the ledger, your private key can be copied. All of it can be duplicated and tampered with. However, Satoshi managed to build a system that makes rule-breaking copies completely and utterly useless. Here's the substance of a lot of what I've just spent some time explaining. Bitcoin is a set of hard and fast rules for money without any rulers. It is the ultimate fair monetary playing field. Think of the world today as a game of monopoly where the banker can create more money out of thin air. The technology underpinning Bitcoin has the potential to ensure that all game participants play by the same set of rules. Whether they are benevolent or malevolent, nobody can cheat in the game of Bitcoin. 
Another way to describe this is that Bitcoin creates a totally free market for money. In the current system, we have an inherently socialist or market-controlling institution, the central bank, at the heart of what we call capitalism. The central bank controls the most important market in the world, the market for money, as money is on one side of every single transaction. Bitcoin shows signs of being able to disrupt this central bank monopoly. Curious why the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, continually tries to subdue Bitcoin? It's because they see the threat to their ability to monopolize and control the money held by their citizens. Certain autocratic governments may get interested in Bitcoin short-term due to its ability to generate wealth. But long-term, as more and more of their citizens start using the protocol, they will likely shudder over the relentless and unstoppable decentralized, open-source, and free-market dynamics that exist around Bitcoin. This is a protocol that cannot be censored or manipulated and this could serve as a cancer for authoritarian strategies. What's worth noting is the last hundred years have shown us free markets generally outcompete centrally controlled markets. As an example, the United States economy dwarfed the Soviet economy in large part because capitalist and free market dynamics were able to produce more wealth and more productivity. Centralized decision makers generally fall short of distributive hive minds when it comes to solving vast, complex, and distributed issues, such as, oh, I don't know, global economic productivity. Think about having to solve an extremely complex, multidisciplinary problem. You have two groups of people working on it. One group has to rely on the ideas and direction of a single leader, while the other group can take input from all participants. It's my presumption that the second group is far more likely to find a solution. When you understand the design and game theory behind Bitcoin, with its decentralization, profound scarcity, and relentless free market structure, it seems likely it may continue to outcompete fiat currencies as they are centrally controlled and manipulated. And ladies and gentlemen, here's what makes the case for Bitcoin even more compelling. In addition to Bitcoin's tremendous scarcity and decentralization, it has a host of other characteristics that make it superior monetary technology as compared to other options in existence today. I'll name a few of these characteristics. Bitcoin is both infinitely divisible and endlessly scalable, such that it has the potential to accommodate economies of any size and scale. It is the most portable money the world has ever seen. Tokens can be instantaneously zipped across the internet like text messages or emails. Coins can also be custodied, stored, and moved with the utmost security and reliability thanks to sound math and cryptography. BTC is inherently permissionless. Anyone with an internet connection can theoretically buy, store, and transfer Bitcoin. If you live in the U.S., this may mean nothing to you. But for the 1.7 billion people on this planet who have no access to bank accounts but have smartphones, Bitcoin usage and circular Bitcoin economies are a dream come true. This is why a country like Kenya ranked number one in 2021 for peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin exchange trade volume. Bitcoin is open source and programmable, meaning new applications can be built on top of its base layer to accommodate future monetary needs and ideas. Without compromising any of its consensus rules or its core tenets of scarcity and the immutability of its ledger, Bitcoin is significantly adaptable such that it could accommodate applications and ideas that don't even exist yet. Ideas and technologies for money that haven't been invented can be run on the Bitcoin protocol in the future. 
In this way, it's much like the internet itself. The roots of what we know as the internet were invented in the 1970s, and in, say, 1985, very few people imagined we'd be streaming HD video on top of TCPIP. But here we are. I could keep going on about the special properties of Bitcoin, but suffice it to say that in many regards, the Bitcoin protocol embodies many of the best, fairest, most secure, and most useful characteristics for money that have ever existed. To demonstrate this even further, I'm going to jump back into monetary history briefly. Many would assert that gold is the best and most useful money mankind has historically ever known. It was repeatedly selected over thousands of years, and its value has stood the test of time. Gold was selected for two main reasons. One, its profound scarcity, and two, its tremendous durability. However, gold's flaws of divisibility, portability, and recognizability led to the centralization of gold in the hands of governments. This combined with economies growing in size and scale eventually led to gold-backed paper currencies and eventually the fiat system we have today. If any of that just went over your head, here's the main idea that pertains to Bitcoin. Satoshi's initial design, as well as how Bitcoin has been developed on up to the present, has it poised to improve on gold's strengths, those being scarcity and durability, while at the same time rectifying, and in some cases perfecting, its flaws, those flaws being divisibility, portability, recognizability, censorship resistance, and self-custody. In essence, Bitcoin harnesses the best of gold, which I've just argued has shown itself to be the most useful money in history, while also upping the ante and making it 21st century proof by ensuring centralized and powerful entities can't commandeer it. One could say that everyone, governments included, is presented with two viable options when it comes to Bitcoin. Resist or participate, not manipulate. Something I've noticed during my time studying Bitcoin is that many newcomers dismiss it because they misunderstand the economic problems Bitcoin's actually trying to solve. At this point in its lifespan, Bitcoin's not trying to be the next Visa, MasterCard, or Venmo. Although one day it may usurp all those platforms through second layer solutions like the Lightning Network. It's important to recognize that things like credit cards and bank accounts are pieces of financial engineering built on top of lower structures in the financial system. This is where people get confused with Bitcoin as a currency. Many folks think that since you can't currently transact with it at the grocery store, which by the way may change soon, that it's worthless. But remember that many massive financial asset classes can't be used to buy a latte, and that doesn't mean they don't have huge market caps. Think real estate, precious metals, stocks, treasury securities, etc. Bitcoin is making a move to be a base layer form of money. It's vying to be an incorruptible, foundational piece of financial infrastructure. Let me explain what I mean by the word layer as it pertains to money. Our system of money has many different layers. I'll oversimplify this into just three layers for the sake of example. Currently, at the base of the US dollar system, you have primarily government debt in the form of treasuries. Above that is bank accounts, and above that is something like your credit card. Years ago, gold used to be the base layer form of money. Countries across the globe used to be on what we refer to as a gold standard. Gold served as a peg or a form of accountability at the foundation of the world's monetary system. Governments and central banks could not simply create money and credit endlessly and manipulate the monetary systems as they do today because of what we could describe as the supervision of the gold standard. 
There was a monetary sheriff holding all economic participants to account, if you will. But gold's shortcomings, some of which I've mentioned earlier, caused this system to fall apart, leading to the fiat money we have now, which has no sound peg or reliable reference point. The Bitcoin protocol has properties that give it the potential to reinstate an incorruptible base layer form of money, much like gold used to be. This base layer store value idea for Bitcoin, what could be called gold 2.0, is a primary narrative surrounding Bitcoin today. But much like the internet, Bitcoin's use case and the narratives that surround it will change and broaden as years and decades trot on. The internet took hold and gained mainstream adoption with the email application. Once the internet became entrenched due to email, it began eating everything, from video to dating to music to pornography. Bitcoin is becoming entrenched as a store of value asset like gold, but if it continues to accomplish that, it could also eat parts of many other asset classes and money applications. Bitcoin is vying to be a sort of base layer foundation for money, and because it's programmable, adaptable, and digital like the internet itself, it may eventually work its way into many, if not most, areas where human beings move and store value. 40 years into the life of the internet, there's almost nowhere information isn't touched by it. 40 years into the life of Bitcoin, there may be almost nowhere money isn't touched by it. You may be sitting there asking, why does this matter? I'm perfectly fine with the existing system. But remember, just because the current landscape may be functional for you, doesn't mean it works for everyone. Many people on this globe see great need for base layer metrics of money to be removed from the control of humans. In the future, our species will hand the reins to computer algorithms in almost every area of life, from healthcare to self-driving cars. Which begs the question, why would we then trust bankers and politicians to control the most important market and language in the world today, the market and language of money? After all, money is an arena inherently prone to tremendous manipulation, given the power that can be garnered by those who control it. Lots of 21st century humans are clamoring for harder, sounder, fairer base layer money that is unchangeable and can't be manipulated or inflated. Here are some examples of who those people might be. If you live in Nigeria and have no access to bank accounts, no access to retirement accounts, no access to blue chip stocks, no way of storing and transferring wealth, but you have a smartphone, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you live in Venezuela, where the currency has collapsed numerous times in recent history, and the government has overprinted money to the point where everything around you gets double digits of a percent more expensive each month, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you're retired and living on a fixed income or pension and life gets pricier every single year, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you're on a modest income, and that dream home you've always wanted is getting out of reach due to inflation, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you run a company and find over time you've needed to take on more and more risk and debt to stay competitive, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you live in China and your government is censoring all transactions, trying to control when, where, and how you can spend your renminbi, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you're tired of the government being able to fund any and every project they want by creating more reserves and dollars out of thin air, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you think the government has gotten far too large, you might be interested in Bitcoin. 
And if you've been sitting around watching Bitcoin rattle off 150% compound annual returns because the people I've just mentioned are buying Bitcoin, you want a piece of this upside? You might be interested in Bitcoin. This thing is still young and relatively new, but the past 13 years have so far shown that this discovery has not gone unnoticed. Bitcoin is a groundbreaking idea, and the market is confirming that. It is by far the best performing asset over the last decade, and it's done so with zero marketing team, no company heading it up, no board of directors, and attacks and false narratives continually bombarding it from every side. It was the fastest asset in history to reach the trillion-dollar market cap by a factor of two. For many of the reasons I've highlighted, Bitcoin should at very least be something that catches your attention. Go back to first principles, and remember money is nothing more than a technology. It's a tool our species uses to transmit value over time and space. BTC has many characteristics and incentives that indicate it could be a superior form of money, History shows us clearly that better technologies eventually proliferate. We've seen repeatedly over time that when groundbreaking tools are invented and discovered, they can't be put back in the box. It's not as though gunpowder, the printing press, the internal combustion engine, or the internet could be halted. They were simply too useful for too many people. Bitcoin could prove to be just the same. So with all of this in mind, how should you approach Bitcoin? First off, I implore you at least keep your eyes open and pay attention. Bitcoin may not be for you. You may disagree with what I've presented here. You may not agree with its use case. You may choose not to invest. But whether you like Bitcoin or not, recognize it is not a joke and stay attentive to it. Bitcoin is not GameStop 2.0. It's not Dogecoin. It's not Luna. It's not craps at the casino. It's completely different from the rest of the quote-unquote crypto space. I do need to digress here for a moment, pull on this thread, and emphasize that in my view, Bitcoin is profoundly unique. It was the first of its kind, and in my humble opinion, it stands head and shoulders above other cryptocurrencies that copy, emulate, or look to build on what Bitcoin started. It's the only protocol that in my humble opinion has checked the necessary boxes to indicate it will remain unchanged and untampered with, as well as reliably continue to grow in its network effect. Bitcoin has accomplished this via what's called a proof-of-work mechanism, which I view as fundamental to its ability to remain decentralized. If Bitcoin does not remain decentralized, I don't believe it can perpetually enforce a fixed quantity of units, which is one of, if not the, primary selling point. What I've just hinted at is dense, and probably beyond the scope of an initial Bitcoin introduction, but it's so important that I at least had to plant the seed. The suggestion I have for you is this. Work to understand Bitcoin first before getting distracted with other cryptocurrencies. I would size up the cryptocurrency landscape like this. Many, if not most of these tokens are the absolute last place I would ever suggest you store your money. Whereas, Bitcoin might just be the first place I would tell you to store your money. For me at this point, Bitcoin is the only protocol that meets my criteria for something I'm willing to store my hard-earned capital in. One of these things is not like the others, but I will admit it's taken me a number of years to develop this conviction and understanding. Bitcoin is a dead serious and groundbreaking discovery that's garnered the support and interest of some of the smartest people on the planet. From investors like Ray Dalio, Stan Drunkenmiller, and Bill Miller, 
to S&P 500 companies like MassMutual, MicroStrategy, Tesla, and Cash App, to a growing cohort of U.S. senators, congressmen, and women, and governors. Yes, like any new and important arena where money's flying around, there are tons of idiots involved who have no freaking clue what they're investing in. Bitcoin does have a ton of hollow hype behind it, but it also has a strong foundation of users and investors that believe it has tremendous value. Please recognize that just because you don't understand Bitcoin or see a need for it doesn't mean it won't keep increasing in value. For 13 years now, the network continues to grow, and it shows no signs of slowing down. More and more people are finding this protocol useful for storing and transferring value across time and space. With this in mind, recall that its supply is completely fixed and totally inelastic. It's the scarcest asset on Earth. Therefore, if demand continues going up as it has, the price is going to go up with it, and a single Bitcoin could reach a valuation that may surprise some. Bitcoin currently has a $600 billion market cap, and one could argue it's currently making a play at gold's market cap of roughly $10 trillion. But Bitcoin could serve purposes that allow it to compete with, or siphon off, part of a whole host of other asset classes such as low and negative yielding debt currently sitting at $85 trillion, money supply currently sitting at $60 trillion, the overly monetized stock and real estate markets sitting at a combined $325 trillion, the art and collectibles market at $20 trillion, and I could go on. Even if Bitcoin were to take a small bite at these apples, as it already has and will likely continue to do, its market cap could reach some astonishing figures. It's been suggested that Bitcoin could have the largest addressable market cap of any asset in human history, and I don't disagree. Bitcoin is still nascent and new. It could theoretically fail. And as investors and savers, we need to be ready for all scenarios. Please don't put all your eggs in one basket. But it's also possible that folks who fail to learn about this protocol and dismiss Bitcoin today will in the future sound as anachronistic and idiotic as Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman who said in 1998, by 2005 or so, it will become clear that the internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than that of the fax machines. Thanks to each of you for listening. At the end of the day, don't take my word for it. As the Bitcoin motto goes, don't trust, verify. I hope this sparked some curiosity. If it did, go learn, go read, go study, because the Bitcoin protocol may just prove to be momentously and historically significant. Take care. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah.